easiest bottle to sell is the first one. It's new. People are willing to try it. But at the end of the day, the product has to carry the load because you're changing habits. If somebody has their preferred drink, in order to make them switch, they have to like yours better. Welcome to The Fort Podcast. I'm Chris Powers, and on this show, I talk to some of the most fascinating minds in business and discuss important topics in the worlds of real estate, entrepreneurship, investing, and more. To learn more, visit thefortpod.com. That's thefortpod.com. Today's sponsor is a company called Relay Human Cloud, which provides staff hosting and services that simplify the process of adding remote overseas workers while removing potential risks. At Fort Capital, we've relied on Relay Human Cloud to help us scale our business. And if you stick around to the end of this episode, you'll learn about an exclusive discount offer specifically for fans of the Fort Podcast. And this episode is brought to you by Fort Capital. At their core, Fort Capital is a privately owned real estate investment firm, but beyond that, they are committed to technology and a world-class culture, which leads to a very forward-thinking mentality. Do you want to stay in the know on all things Fort Capital? Be sure to follow Fort Capital on LinkedIn and sign up for the quarterly newsletter on www.fortcapitallp.com. Fort Capital's quarterly newsletter subscribers are the first to receive business and real estate insights, news, videos, podcasts, free resources, and more. Troy, welcome to the show. Thanks, Chris. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Let's just start with uh, a little bit of your background and how you got started uh, in the whiskey business. Oh, uh, kind of a, a winding road on my background, but um, I guess from the very beginning, so I, I grew up in West Texas, family was in the oil and gas business, um, went to Texas Tech, uh, didn't really know what I wanted to do after college. Um, I kind of fell into, you know, what the family was doing, uh, oil and gas. And I didn't really want to do um, kind of land work or operations or anything like that. I wanted to do something in the finance field. And so I ended up moving to Houston and worked in the oil and gas private equity side of the business, um, which, uh, as it turned out, was a phenomenal experience, yeah. you know, learning about fundraising, learning about, you know, how to build teams, you know, strategy, all those things. Um, and, you know, working essentially, you know, the equivalent of two jobs because <laughs> you're, you know, there at all hours, but got a lot of great experience from that. And then um, I was brought or hired, I guess, uh, out of that shop to come to Fort Worth uh, to help run a finance department for an oil and gas company, um, which was kind of an interesting switch being on the sponsor side and then moving over to the operations side. And so I got to learn, you know, a whole new set of skills on the operations side. Um, and then, you know, after a while I was just kind of felt this itch to do mm. my own thing. And, um, I had a lot of hobbies, you know, I'm a hobbyist and like to <laughs> learn and, you know, try new things and figure out how things work. Um, and one of those things that I was really interested in at the time was uh, whiskey. You know, I'd kind of, you know, started dabbling and trying different styles. And of course, in college, I tried to brew my own beer and it came out <laughs> terrible. And, but kind of, you know, going back on those um, experiences, you know, really, you know, 
starting to learn about whiskey, you know, kind of geeking out on, you know, what makes one whiskey different than the other and trying different styles. And, you know, that just kind of led me down a rabbit hole of, you know, really wanting to learn about, you know, how do people make whiskey and, um, you know, what's entailed. And so about that time, uh, we had, you know, sold our assets of that business and we were thinking about starting a new oil and gas company. And, you know, we were kind of in this limbo period. And so, you know, weren't really working on anything, you know, full time. And, and then about that time, I guess, is when Tito's was doing a lot of advertising and really, um, you know, hit my radar. And then I just thought to myself, I wonder if anybody's doing this for whiskey, um, just out of curiosity. And so then just kind of got on the internet and was looking around and there were a couple of groups, um, in Austin and, a um, couple of other very small, uh, fledgling kind of startups that were happening. And then, you know, it's like, yeah, I really want to dig into this a little bit deeper and see, you know, is there an opportunity there? Because, you know, as I was evaluating what I wanted to do next, of course, I wanted to, you know, create a business. Um, it needed to make money. Um, but I really wanted to find something that I was you know, passionate about and interested in to sink my teeth into. And I'll also say, you know, working on the finance side of the oil business, um, there wasn't a tangibility of it. You know, there, it just wasn't tangible. I couldn't feel it. I couldn't touch it. Um, and so I don't think I knew it at the time, but that was something that was really, you know, of interest to me. Mm. Um, and so ultimately, uh, just kind of, as I said, went down that rabbit hole of, you know, figuring out, you know, what's out there, who's doing this, you know, is there a market? And then probably after checking a lot of the boxes, you know, probably the biggest one for me that kind of allowed me to ultimately, you know, step off the ledge, so to speak, was, you know, finding out that Texas was the second largest consuming state of whiskey in the country, mm. but very little of it was made here. So I was like, wow, you know, if I could just build a business, you know, that would be successful in Texas, that'd be a sizable business. Yep. So kind of, yeah, that's what kicked it off. Yeah. I think you just answered the question was, was that the, the final turning point I wrote down, uh, like at what point did, did had you had all your boxes been checked that you're like, all right, there's an opportunity here. That, was that it? That was the last one. Okay. Yeah. And you know, at the time I had a two year old and one on the way. Um, had not made a ton of money. So yeah. I wasn't independently wealthy. Um, had a little bit in savings. And, you know, my wife, who, you know, comes from a banking background, you know, is very astute and kind of sizing up ideas. <laughs> um, and I knew that was going to be a tough conversation. And so uh, I knew I had to kind of have all my ducks in a row and really think this out. And so, went through that process without really her knowing anything about it. And then once I did kind of, you know, check all those boxes, I had that conversation and I said, you know, don't hit me here. Um, <laughs> you know, but just hear me out. And ultimately, you know, laid it out for her and she said, you know what, I'll support you a hundred percent. That's let's awesome. Do it. So you came home and I'm assuming it's a series of conversations, which are like, I want to start a whiskey business. Yeah. Pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, it was, I was a little nervous, very nervous about having that conversation. Um, 
because it was a huge departure from what I was doing, obviously. All right. So we'll get into like how the business is built, but why was nobody doing this in Texas? Like, what did you found at that point? Was there anything that was like, there's a reason why nobody's doing this? Or is it just, it just the opportunity hadn't come here yet? Well, to be clear, there were people that were in business trying it, but you know, they were so small that it wasn't really, you know, uh, mainstream in any of the major markets. Um, but Tito's had started to climb that mountain and get national exposure. And so one of the things that I was trying to figure out is why, um, why isn't anyone doing this? And, you know, there wasn't really a, a cut and dry answer other than, you know, later on, we'd figure out that, you know, most people think that bourbon has to come from Kentucky. And so, you know, if you're making whiskey or bourbon in Texas, you know, you can't do that because it has to be made in Kentucky, you know, which was uh, an interesting conversation to have with people because people really believe that. Um, but the fact of the matter is, is that, you know, Tito really was the one that paved the way for craft distillers in Texas. Um, some laws had kind of changed a little bit. Um, and then ultimately, you know, figured out that, you know, there's nothing that prevents anyone from making whiskey in Texas if you have the right permits. And I'm a total noob here, but what about Kentucky makes, is it just like a, that's just like history and tradition, or is there some type of plant or something there that makes it have to be in Kentucky? Well, I think it's that that's where bourbon was made. Okay. You know, since, you know, even before prohibition, okay. uh, it was kind of a hot spot for bourbon. So, you know, when we were doing all of our research, we figured out that, you know, actually you can make bourbon in Texas and, you know, their laws are very, you know, specific and strict on what you have to follow to do it. But, um, and the mainly having a distiller's license, which was a significant feat in and of itself to, uh, to start. Do you have to have a distiller's license before you can do anything? Is that like step one? Yes. So, uh, it is illegal to make distilled spirits without a license. Um, and so, you know, one of the, the interesting things that we learned, and this is kind of, you know, if we would have known all the things, all the hurdles that we would have had to gone through at that time, it would have been really difficult to kind of push through. Yeah. Uh, so thankfully, you know, ignorance is bliss in, yeah. in a lot of ways. <laughs> um, but, you know, one of the things that we learned was that you had to have your building secured, you had to have the serial numbers of your equipment to just put on your application, um, which is a significant capital outlay mm. even before you, you know, are authorized to distill. So there were some kind of sleepless nights there, you know, deploying that capital and, and waiting for the federal government to give you your license. So going, going back just a second. So you come home, um, you get, uh, you get approval from your wife which I think that's a common thread with every successful entrepreneur is a supportive spouse and one that's willing to overlook a little bit of the madness. So what happened from there? Like, I kind of want to go through how this got built. We talked a little bit about the license, but how did your partnership come to be? And then how did you, like, what'd you raise money on? Like, how are those first, what that first year look like to get this thing off the ground? Yeah, great question. So when I decided that I was going to, you know, pursue it full time, um, it was just me. I had, started to develop a business plan, had a lot of experience in doing that, you know, from my private equity days, uh, knew I was going to have to raise capital. 
and just started kind of pursuing that and, and getting up the learning curve. Well, part of that due diligence process was visiting a distiller down in uh, the Austin area, a small bourbon producer. Um, we, I went down there and then within probably 10 minutes of meeting with him, he said, you know, another guy from Fort Worth is coming to see me in a week. And I said, no kidding. Uh, <laughs> who's that? And he said, it's Leonard Firestone. And I said, ah, oh, I know Leonard. Uh, <laughs> I knew his brother really well. And uh, I was kind of, that was kind of a deflating moment because I thought I was the only one with the idea. Yeah. So, you know, pursued the tour uh, after uh, the tour, got in my car, called Chris, his brother. I said, hey, I need your, your brother Leonard's number. So I'm literally on the road back from Austin. Call Leonard, said, hey, I hear you want to get in the whiskey business. <laughs> he said, how do, how do you know that? I said, well, you know, and I told him the connection. And I said, why don't we get together? Um, let's talk. And at the time, I'm thinking I'm, I want to size up my competition. Yeah. And I think he's thinking the same thing. <laughs> so we figured out a time to meet that week, met, um, and it was just, you know, had a three hour conversation and you know if you've ever been in that situation where you meet somebody that you know kind of kindred spirits you know if you know you know kind yeah. of thing and you know i knew at the time that you know he was a straight shooter i knew it was going to be a, a tall mountain to climb um i think he realized the same thing and so you know had a great first meeting and then had i don't know three or four follow-up conversations and then we ultimately decided, hey, let's, you know, this is going to be a, a, a tough, you know, road to hoe. Um, you know, let's partner and, and do it together. So that's how we developed the partnership. So then literally I'm still in the office downtown of, you know, kind of with my oil and gas friends. Leonard didn't have an office. I said, hey, we've got a, an open office here. Come up here. Let's, you know, start working on this. He had a business plan about halfway done. I had a business plan about halfway done. And we literally <laughs> began to merge those business plans. And thankfully, you know, the ideas and the, um, you know, strategies were, were pretty lockstep. Um, so over the next probably seven months, eight months, um, we finished that. We developed a, a pitch book. And then, you know, we had to go and raise money. You know, this was in 09 so right after you know the subprime crisis hit um where you know everyone was really skittish about investing um and so we hit the road and you know just kind of circled the wagons on our you know networks friends family old oil and gas acquaintances um and started you know pitching this idea and you know looking back on it if you think about you know, the proposition, we laugh about it. It's here, there's two guys never, you know, distilled anything in their life, um, pitching this business to, uh, make whiskey. We don't have a product for you to taste. We don't have a brand developed yet. You know, and it's just a big, trust me. And, you know, we got a lot of no's, um, uh, definitely a lot more no's than yeses. And it took about, you know, all told almost a full year to raise a, a small amount of capital um but we we just kind of stuck with it and of course like any you know entrepreneur you've got a, a target in mind of how much money you want to raise 
and you end up raising less. Yeah. <laughs> so, but we had kind of reworked the plan and felt really comfortable with, you know, how much we had raised and felt like, you know, it gave us enough, you know, runway to, you know, deploy the capital for the equipment and then, you know, get all, you know, all of our first bottles and, you know, a little bit of marketing dollars. Um, and so we closed that round in, um, uh, I believe June of 2010. Um, and then we were off. So you said that you had to have uh, your license, but you also had to have the equipment tags and a location. Uh, was there anything about the location that had to meet certain criteria for there to be a distillery in Texas or was it just industrial zoning or light, light industrial, uh, was required for Fort Worth. Yeah. And, you know, beyond the kind of specific zoning requirements, you know, for us, we felt like it was important to be centrally located because we knew that, you know, whiskey was starting to become more and more popular. We wanted, you know, our customers and, uh, to be able to come to the distillery, to see it in action. Uh, we felt like that was going to be a, a big differentiator for us. If they had to drive an hour, you know, we weren't going to get near the foot traffic that we were hoping for. And then it had to have kind of that feel of a distillery. And yeah. so, uh, thankfully we found, a great, you know, 1920s era building right on the south side of uh, 35 on Vickery uh, that was just kind of sitting there empty. Um, and again, you know, real estate down in on South Main area, it was still kind of a transient area. Yeah. Um, but, you know, we loved it uh, very much like your kind of red brick here. Yeah. You know, it had that look and feel and wood columns and um so we thought it was perfect we'll get into whiskey in a little bit but i think uh it would be fun to go through just kind of how the brand came to be we can talk about the caps but one of the things y'all did really well that i think as a as a as a customer was uh tx whiskey just it, it was it just felt really good it obviously tasted good it was a great brand how did you take that initial money and then start developing the concept and and we'll get into kind of how the first deal was a blend. But as far as just how it became TX Whiskey, how you pick the bottle, how you pick the cap, we would be doing the listeners a disservice not to hear all that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so during the time that Leonard and I were kind of, you know, putting together our, our pitch deck and our plan, our strategy, you know, we had a, a, a giant whiteboard, you know, really floor to ceiling of names. And we would, you know, think about a name one day and put it up on the board and, you know, we just kind of stare at them and revisit them. And TX was on there, um, early on, but it was written like you would write, you know, the state on an mm. envelope. One of the things that we wanted to do, uh, that was important to us is we didn't want to be kind of cliche Texas. Like we always called it airport Texan, you know, where you go in the airport, you see the boot keychain and, um, <laughs> And we wanted to create a brand that resembled, you know, what Texas meant to us. Um, of course, we wore boots, and but we didn't necessarily, you know, have a ranch, and we didn't have horses and all those things. Um, and so, you know, we kind of developed this catchphrase of, you know, um, rugged elegance. You know, that's what Texas means to us. Um, you know, in Fort Worth specifically, where you've got, you know, the dichotomy of the stockyards all the way to, you know, the modern museum. Yeah. Um, so this great range, um, 
of content or, you know, visuals to play with. And so, you know, as I said, TX was on there. We thought it was just a little too, you know, cliche or, or basic. And so we just kept, you know, struggling to find names and struggling to come up with something cool. And then one day we're in there and kind of beating our head against the wall. And uh, I can't remember who did it, whether it was Leonard or myself, we kind of, you know, flipped the TX vertically um, somehow. Um, and we both looked at it. We're like, you know, that looks like a really cool stylized, you know, cattle brand, uh, which totally changed, you know, the look and feel uh, and our perspective on that name. And so we just, you know, we both loved it and we ran with it. And we said, you know, is it going to be polarizing potentially? But, you know, who cares? Texas is iconic. Um, and we loved it. So that was kind of, you know, how we arrived at the name to pursue. And then the packaging, you know, as I said, we we didn't want to be cliche or predictable, but, you know, we really wanted it to resemble where we're from. Um, you know, having elements on the bottle is really important. You know, it needs to be, you know, beautiful to the consumer on the shelf, you know, to attract them to buy it. But also, you know, there needs it needs to be purposeful. One of the brands that we were, you know, big fans of was Maker's Mart, mm. um, which I think Maker's does a tremendous job of kind of you know having that differentiator red wax the red wax yeah, yeah. And, no, and no two are the same um and it's just a really you know great brand um and iconic brand because of it and so you know we kept telling ourselves you know what what can be our red wax and, and one day you know i'm a hobbyist woodworker <laughs> uh got a wood shop at home and you know, one day we had the idea of, you know, it'd be really cool if we could, you know, somehow use, you know, boot leather on our, you know, bottle somehow. And I started playing around in my shop, you know, with the bottle cap. So I have a lathe and I was, you know, literally, you know, creating these bottle part or bottle top pieces. And I go into my um, closet and I'm, you know, I'm a big boot guy. I got lots of boots. <laughs> um, but I grabbed one of my ostrich boots and I ended up punching a hole or cutting at that time, cutting out hole on the upper part of the boot, you know, with the stitching and, you know, fashioned this top that, um, I thought was just epic. It was so cool. <laughs> and so, and it was rough and an interesting, you know, total side note, if you go to the distillery today, I think it's in the bottling line. We have a shadow box with the original prototypes that oh, I really? which is neat. That's um, awesome. But uh put that together, took a picture of it, uh, sent it to Leonard, and I said, What do you think about this? And he goes, That's it. That's awesome. Um, so the next step was, okay, that's really cool, and kind of figured out how we can, you know, put it together. How are we gonna make hundreds of these? How are we gonna make thousands of these? We're gonna need a lot of leather. And so and you can't just keep carving your boots up. That's right. And we weren't going to go buy boots <laughs> to you know, make tops. And so that's when we had the idea, let's go to some local boot makers and you know, show them what we're doing, see what they think about it. And the first person that we went to was um, Wilson Franklin at Letty's. Uh, we walked in with, I think at that time, maybe a bottle prototype with a bottle top and we showed it to him and said, Hey, you know, what do you think about this? We need, 
you know, a partner and he thought it was super cool. Uh, and he said, you know, we cut, we get these, you know, skins and we cut all of our boot parts out of them. And, you know, there are some little strips that, you know, could be big enough for your, you know, little circle. And he said, we'd love them. And so he goes in the back and he gets us a box. He said, try this first. And the first box he gave us were some of the most exotic, cool, <laughs> colorful, you know, leathers that, um, he had. And so we made, I don't know, maybe 200 tops out of that. Um, and realized that, you know, we could do that. We could do it in scale. That's awesome. Yeah. It's kind of become an iconic thing. And, and the, even the shape of the bottle, I think is iconic. I'm assuming that wasn't like, Hey, we'll just take that one. Was there any, you know, thought and process put into the, the shape of the bottle? Actually, it's a stock bottle. Oh, it is. It is a stock bottle. So okay. we didn't have enough money to, you know, invest in molds to oh, yeah. that because it's expensive. Um, and so we found a stock bottle, but what we wanted to do was make it different enough to where, you know, it didn't look stock. And so, you know, the, the bottle tops were a big part of the story and, you know, the story of TX and, you know, what it resembled. But then some of the other elements were very carefully thought out, like the, the canvas around the neck, you know, that's a nod to, you know, the chuck wagons. Uh, and the stagecoaches of the West, you know, it's very tactile, you know, feeling uh, product. And, you know, it, it kind of meets that rugged elegance where, you know, when you pour it out of the bottle, it catches those drips and kind of stains it a little bit. Yeah. Uh, we kind of liked that. Uh, it didn't need to be super polished. Yeah. So that, and then, you know, there's a silver band around the base and that is a nod to kind of the, the conchos and the belt buckles and kind of, you know, the saddlery and silver, you know, parts of, you know, our cavalry heritage. I always love chatting with you about this stuff because everything was like intentional. Nothing really was a mistake. There was a lot of, or not a mistake, but just a, you know, quick decision. Everything had a, a purpose and a place. Uh, if you're starting a, a distillery business, it's like starting a, an orchard of some sort. You got to plant the stuff. It's not even ready for years. So let's spend some time talking about the blend versus what all had to happen over years to actually get y'all's proprietary or the stuff that y'all were distilling the ready for market. Yeah. Yep. No, great question. So you're absolutely right. You know, I guess by law to be called, we, we knew we wanted to develop a straight bourbon. Mm -hmm. And what that means is, you know, along with some other uh, requirements, it has to be two years in the barrel. Um, at a minimum. And then through a lot of our research and talking with, you know, a lot of people in Kentucky, the two years isn't enough to really mature the product. And so, you know, most bourbon out there, if it's, you know, it's minimum of four years old, you know, especially the Kentucky bourbons. Um, and then it goes up from there. And so we didn't have the capital to just, you know, produce bourbon, sit on it for two to four years. Uh, and then release it. We knew we needed to come up with a product, but we didn't want to it to be you know something that was just you know buying existing you know bourbon, putting it in a bottle, slapping a name on it. Uh, it had to have our fingerprints on it. And so we started talking with people in the industry about you know what are the options here. You know, blended whiskey was uh, kind of a, a four letter word at that time. You know, people didn't appreciate 
blended whiskey um and you know definitely most of the american whiskey out there was bourbon you know canadian whiskey uh on the other hand a lot of it is blended whiskey and so again going back to our diligence we looked at you know what's one of the most popular whiskeys in texas right now and it was crown royal crown royal is a canadian blended whiskey and we're like well you know, if, if that's the most popular whiskey, then clearly, you know, Texans like that profile, like that blended profile. Let's create our own blend. And so that led us down a whole nother, you know, education process of, you know, what it takes to create a blend. And arguably, um, it's more or can be more difficult than creating a straight bourbon, as we've learned. Why? Because you are having to take different components and with different ratios and trying to target a certain taste profile. Got it. Um, whereas a straight bourbon, you're creating the mash, you're distilling it, you're putting it in a barrel and you're waiting, you empty the barrel. There is some mingling, you can mingle barrels at the end of, of bourbon to kind of modify profiles a bit. Um, but for the most part, it's you know taking you know disparate different types of whiskeys to create you know something that is delicious. Um, and so we worked on that for a really long time, uh, probably six eight months. And how does that work though? Is it you go into like a lab and they have all these and you're just kind of <laughs> tasting and going like how does that part actually play out? Later in the history <laughs> of the distillery, we did have a lab <laughs> early on. We did not have a lab. Yeah, you had your garage or something. It was, we had the distillery, but it was, we would, you know, procure these different samples and then literally, you know, do blend test after blend test after blend test. But you would just order all the, the, the ingredients that could go into a blend. Obviously you found some vendor and you would just say, just keep ship us samples of this. And y'all were just kind of mixing mixology on your own or was somebody kind of showing you how to do it? We were basically doing it on our own okay, um, and having to go find different sources because you don't want to, you know, pull your uh, sourced whiskey from one location because then, you know, you're not, you don't have a lot of variability in how you can modify the taste profile. Um, so we wanted to get different styles of whiskey from different locations um, so that we could have you know, a lot of options. And so... Yeah, it was just us, uh, you know, me, Leonard, and at that time we had hired our head distiller, uh, Rob Arnold, and just the three of us tried iteration after iteration. And, you know, a lot of consumer product brands use focus groups. We didn't use the focus <laughs> group. We just said, you know, what do we like? And we felt like that if we liked it, you know, we didn't have obscure taste. If we liked it and it was down the fairway of something that, you know, Texans already liked, then, um, yeah, it was going to work. Yeah. Naive. That had to be a fun phase, getting a little buzz before lunch, before the <laughs> afternoon meetings. You said it took months and it seems like in every part of y'all story, there's kind of been this aha moment of, you know, this is the name, this is the cap. When was it finally like, aha, we have the ingredients. It was a process of I would say, you know, 100 to 150 different iterations. Um, and it's, you know, we kind of get down, we, we would narrow it down to, you know, the stock whiskeys that we liked. And then it was just a matter of, you know, refining. It's like, okay, a little too, you know, peppery, you know, let's dial that back. Um, 
So ultimately, you know, it was just kind of tweaking little by little. Uh, and we'd sit on it for a week or two. Yeah, this is really good. This is really good. And then, you know, you drink it for a week and you're like, ah, I just, no, it's not that good. Let's, we've got to change it. It's a very unscientific, really. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So you decide this is our, uh, this is going to be our blend. What happens from there? Then the real eye-opening moment comes uh, and talk about being naive. You know, I think when we started, we knew that, you know, to sell liquor, there was effectively a three-tier system. So the three tiers, and these were developed after prohibition, but the three tiers are the manufacturer, which is what a distiller is, a distributor, and then a retailer. Um, if you belong in one of those, you can't own or belong or have the other two. So if you're a distiller, you can't sell your product direct. If you're a wholesaler, you can't be a distiller, so on and so forth. Um, and so the, the laws required us to have a distributor. Well, you know, again, being naive, thinking, oh, well, we'll just go grab a distributor and, you know, they'll come pick it up and they'll take it to the retailers and the restaurants. And, you know, it's great. Um, <laughs> Why isn't everybody doing that? Yeah, that's, that's, that was kind of afterthought. Well, uh, in reality, distribution is is tough. You know, they are, uh, and by this point, you know, there was a lot of consolidation uh, with distributors in Texas. And so they're really kind of two main distributors. And if you think about uh, if the law says that all liquor has to be sold by a distributor and there are two in the state, and that means that those two basically, you know, sell and manage all brands. and you know, those brands are the Jim Beams of the world and, you know, the TXs of the world. And so, you know, realizing that, um, you know, they had finite resources and, you know, only a certain number of salespeople, um, you know, again, thinking like, hey, we give you the product, it, you know, immediately gets distributed. That was a real, a way, you know, an, an eye-opening moment. Um, realizing that, you know, in fact, we had to be the ones out there creating the pull in the market uh, that would then trigger them to send their reps to go and, and deliver product. You had to find customers. And then at the early stage, you would just say, okay, Mr. Distributor, we now have customers start distributing to them. Well, specifically, you would uh, go to a bar or restaurant and, you know, give them a trial of your whiskey and really try to sell them and bringing it in. And, and you're, you're learning all of these things like, you know, shelf space and, you know, uh, there's a saying a battle of inches, you know, if you go into any bar, they have a finite amount of real estate on their back bar and with an infinite number of brands. Um, and so, you know, any bar that you go into, you're basically having to talk them into taking one of those bottles off mm. and putting yours on, uh, which can be challenging. And so we learned a lot in that process, but you know, at the end of the day, the customer wins. Um, and so it was, we realized that we really needed people to get behind the brand and, you know, change, um, change their taste profile. Really? What was the early pitch to folks when you're bringing a whiskey? Like you just said, there could be 50 bottles of whiskey behind the bar. Like, how do you pitch? Some, like, why would they take one off and put yours on besides 
maybe you're from Fort Worth and they know you, but beyond that, what's... well, in the very early days, um, so there was an article written about us before we launched the product, which helped tremendously. And I'll, I'll say this and Leonard will too, that, you know, a huge part of our success was the loyalty of Fort Worth. Um, because, you know, being, and we were the first whiskey distillery in North Texas, um, which was a, a big deal because there wasn't any competition. And so I think it was really unique and new and people were excited and Mad Men, the show was on and people were learning about whiskey and, you know, there was kind of this new renaissance happening. Uh, so timing was really good, but they, um, so that article came out, the distributor, we gave them one pallet of whiskey, um, which was, I don't know, 200 and something bottles. And they thought at the time, you know, this will take about a month and a half to two months to sell this. Well, they pick it up, start, you know, putting it in liquor stores. Uh, the article had come out previously, so there was built up demand and that sold out of that within, I don't know, a couple of days. And then they called us and they said, we are out of whiskey. We need more. <laughs> And what they didn't realize is that that first pallet, so at the time we had, um, I don't know, maybe five of us working and we were, you know, doing the blending, um, building the tops ourselves. We were, you know, had a little four spout manual filler. We had a little manual machine to put the silver around the bottom. We were hand gluing the canvas around the neck. Uh, Hugely labor intensive. Yeah. Uh, took us uh, probably a week to do that pallet alone. <laughs> and they're saying we need, you know, three pallets in four days. And so that was kind of a, a major, uh, you know, good problem to have, but challenging problem as well. So we, you know, I can go on for days with these stories, but one in particular was as soon as we heard that, you know, we were really excited, obviously, but then we, you know, did a lot of trial and error. Okay, let's use, you know, uh, day workers to come in and help, you know, do a lot of the you know, bottle assembly and, you know, that ebbed and flowed. We started with 20 and, you know, there were all kinds of issues with that and came, went back to 10 and then do we hire full-time, part-time? Anyway, it was a mess. Um, so that was the, and, and the other funny thing is um, people don't think of, uh, summer as being the optimum time to launch a whiskey <laughs> summer is not uh, a good a, typically a good uh, time of year for whiskey um but we decided to launch it june 12th hottest day of the year <laughs> <laughs> but it worked out when is whiskey the best fall and winter winter months yeah. um you know colder generally um we refer to it as ond october november december um, gift giving, you know, all the things that, uh, really help sell whiskey. Just taking a, a step back for a second, you kind of earlier on just mentioned Tito's several times. Um, if you, as you sit back today, like what, what, what made Tito's successful and maybe what are some of the things that you guys incorporated into your company? Because maybe you saw Tito's doing it. Well, I think Tito's was successful. One reason he was successful is because he was the first in yeah. Texas. Okay. Um, I think another reason he was successful 
that, uh, to your point of what we kind of, um, uh, you know, mimicked was he put his face out there. No one else had really done that before, you know, a brand was created or maybe it was named after, you know, someone who, you know, has passed on whatever. Um, he really put himself out there and I think people really, you know, gravitated to that, you know, they wanted, we started referring to it as, you know, face place product, um, you know, having a face out there, some, you know, a person that somebody can, you know, see, uh, and relate to. Um, and so he was really the first to do that. And I think that was a major, um, change for the industry and, you know, really, uh, probably contributed greatly to success. Yeah, I'll brag on y'all for a little. I, I'm big into branding and marketing. I think it's y'all's story in branding and marketing is one of the best I've ever seen. It's just a great brand. It's just well, a great you. brand. Putting the place, uh, the face with it. And maybe that leads to my next question, um, which is, it seems like every celebrity now is attaching themselves to the next great tequila or vodka. Is that a bubble? Is, is there too much alcohol? Like, is there is there room for everybody, or, or what do you think about like the current market as it relates to putting that face with a brand? Well, I think uh, is it saturated? It certainly can be. Um, I mean, there are certain brands like um, Casamigos, for instance, with George Clooney and uh, Randy Gerber, who were hugely successful. Um, but it, I think it it comes down to you know, an authentic story uh, is really the the game changer for some of these brands. You know, we tried really hard to be as authentic as we possibly could, you know, putting ourselves out there, really spending time on, you know, purposeful uh, product development, purposeful, you know, branding, purposeful, you know, bottle elements. Um, and, you know, I think they uh, use them as an example, had a great story, you know, it's three guys, that you know, love tequila that were hanging out down in Mexico and decided to you know put a brand together. Yeah, the ones that um, just you know whether it's a, a a going concern that is just looking for a face to attach to it, I think have harder time um, you know selling and become you know getting to scale uh, just because there's a face attached to it. Yeah, I think we talked about this at lunch last time. Brand versus flavor. How much of a great alco- uh, alcohol business has to do with the flavor and the product itself versus the brand? And maybe that's an extension of the question I just asked you. But um, when you think about those two, are they equally as important? Can you overcome flavor if your brand is awesome or is it vice versa? No. You So the way we looked at it was the easiest bottle to sell is the first one. It's new. People are willing to try it, but at the end of the day, the product has to carry the load because you're changing habits. And so if somebody has their preferred drink, whether it's beer, wine, you know, whiskey, they've been drinking a certain brand because they like it for a long time. In order to make them switch, they have to like yours better. And so you have product wins. Got it. Um, okay, kind of going back. So the blend is taken off. Um, you kind of got your distributor worked out. Just talk a little bit about the first couple of big accounts or big sales. Was there any pivotal, pivotal customers that took y'all on that kind of moved it to the next four? Was it just a bunch of restaurants around town? Like what kind of got the sales pouring in? 
for a long time, there was more demand than supply, which was a great thing to have. And again, um, thankful to you know the people of Fort Worth because they would go and stand in line for hours, literally, you know, or put themselves on waiting lists. Um, so, you know, the way you sell in this industry is off-premise and on-premise. Off-premise would be um, the liquor stores. On-premise are all the bars, restaurants, hotels, et cetera. Certain brands are do better on the on-premise, so the bars, restaurants. Others do better on the off-premise. Um, has to do with you know where people prefer to drink, right? Um, and so we were really uh, fortunate in that we got distribution in all the big retailers in town. And at that time, you know, it, there was specs. Um, there were a lot of, I would say, you know, larger mom and pop liquor stores. And again, they were just kind of rallied behind it. And of course, they're rallying behind it because people are calling in asking for the product, which is uh, phenomenal. Couple that with all the kind of free press we were getting at the time because people were hearing about the stories of the wait list and those kinds of things. It was, you know, really magical um, as a new brand. Uh, and so then, you know, certain restaurants would pick it up and, um, you know, Riata was a, a big uh, group early on that supported us and then um, just kind of gradually grew. And then, you know, then we would start hearing stories and, and we were very um, specific about let's, you know, really make sure we're taking care of our backyard. So, you know, starting in Fort Worth and then, you know, starting to distribute over in the mid cities and then over into Dallas. It took us probably, I don't know, six months to really get out of uh, DFW. And that's our distributor kind of you know, hearing people asking for it in Austin and so on. That's the pull that I referred to earlier. You know, they don't, they won't just automatically, you know, shotgun your product in all the, the locations. They need to hear, you know, the consumers are demanding it. Yeah. If you said Fort Worth, like Fort Worth, y'all obviously uh, pillars of the community, uh, know a lot of people. It was easy to get people to rally around. Was there anything about going to Austin, San Antonio, Dallas? that you had to pick up some new strategies because you weren't the hometown heroes. Without a doubt. So um, what do you do then? Well, you know, we didn't have uh, big marketing budgets. We were still, you know, a startup company. Um, so, you know, guerrilla marketing tactics. We gave away a ton of product, uh, did a lot of tastings. So Leonard and I were on the road a lot. Um, you know, bars, restaurants, even uh, retailers, like specs, they want the owners or and or distillers there kind of hand selling. Um, and so we'd set up little, you know, we had kind of our travel, you know, suitcase, you know, you set up a little banner and they'll <laughs> they'll maybe put you on a on a barrel and along with four or five other brands. And, you know, it's literally hand to hand combat. Yeah. You know, it's like <laughs> who can win the, you know, consumer. And so we did a ton of that. And we had to do that literally the whole, you know, life cycle of the business yeah. um, because we were constantly opening new markets. But, you know, associating ourselves with, you know, a lot of the charitable events in town, you know, we looked at it as, you know, big groups of people 
um, high exposure. Um, we stayed away from most traditional, you know, marketing and advertising uh, efforts like billboards and those kinds of things. It was really word of mouth, um, and anything we could find that you know could, you know, get liquid on lips and reach the largest number of people um, were efforts that we really focused on. Are, do most people when they pick a like I think I maybe fall into this category a bit, but do they usually say like, okay, I'm a whiskey drinker. This is my whiskey. Or are you usually one of three or four whiskeys that they might drink? It depends. Okay. Um, you know, I, for instance, am a whiskey lover. I love all kinds of whiskey. Yeah. But, you know, my regular, believe it or not, is TX because <laughs> you know, we developed that profile because we liked it. Um, but I think, you know, some people, you know, have their favorites and their go-tos and don't deviate. Others like to try different kinds. Yeah. Um, it just depends on the person, I think. All right. So the blend had taken off. That was kind of your lead horse. I remember before y'all even released this, the stuff that you were barreling, I thought in my heart at one point, this is before we ever knew each other. I was like, man, I hope what they're actually going to make is as good as the blend. Cause the blend had become really good and, and really famous. So, Let's kind of talk about what was happening while that was all going on. You were obviously now going to start distilling and brewing your own. Is it brewing? I guess it's distilling. How did that all like move forward? So when we, uh, importantly, we were running parallel paths. So the minute we were uh, launching the blend, we were also distilling. Um, and so we had, you know, fermenters. And that was another thing that we've, spent a lot of time researching and figuring out, you know, because there are all these kind of strict requirements in making bourbon, and these are what are called standards of identity that are developed by the federal government uh, in order to call it bourbon, like champagne or, you know, so forth. There were very few things that you could change, you know, to make yourself different. So, um, you know, the grain had to be, you know, at least 51% corn, you could use rye or wheat as your, uh, really you could use any grain as a flavor grain, as we called it, um, and then malted barley. So those were the three elements. Yeast was a big component, um, and then the barrel. So those are really the only things that you can tweak to modify taste profile. So when we were setting out to develop our mash bill, as well as, you know, our, our um, mashing process, you know, one of the things that we keyed in on was the yeast. Um, so most people would go and buy commercially available distillers yeast. Well, the yeast can contribute up to 25% of the flavor of the, of the product. Um, so long story short, and it's a really cool story, but, um, it'll take too much time here, but we ended up capturing our own yeast from the wild, cultivating it. And that's now what the bourbon uses um and has since day one and so it provides a its own unique profile um and those are you know elements that we really were proud of because no one at that time had captured their own yeast for whiskey since you know probably in the prohibition do you know what it's going to taste like even though it's going to take four years for the mash and Every, for everything to be distilled, do you just have like a hope that, man, I hope this tastes like what we think it's going to taste like four years from now, or 
is there something that you can taste before you go all in on this four-year bet to go, I think we're going to land right here taste-wise? Well, you know generally what um, your flavor grain is going to provide. So okay. um, if it's wheat, it's going to be a little sweeter, um, a little softer, so to speak. If it's rye, it's going to be a little spicier. Um, so you know that. The yeast really uh, changes the flavor dramatically. So you can get you know, fruit, you could get earthy, you could get a lot of different um, elements there. Um, but where, where we were testing was off of the still, which is what we call white dog. So that's the white lightning, the stuff, you know, the clear liquid coming off the still. Uh, a lot of people don't realize whiskey doesn't come off brown. It's the, oh, it doesn't? No, it's the barrel that gives it its brown color. Okay. Yeah. So it's, it's clear. It looks like vodka, but it doesn't taste anything like vodka. Um, so, you know, we spent a lot of time, effort you know, really honing in on what we wanted that distillate or white dog to taste like. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, did we know at the time exactly what it would taste like, you know, two years, three years down the road? No. Um, but we knew it was going to have the characteristics, generally speaking, that we were looking for. And isn't it a big deal, like what type of barrel you pick and what the barrel's made of, or is that not a big deal? It is a big deal. Uh, so again, one of those standards that you have to adhere to is that bourbon has to be aged in a new white oak charred barrel okay and just so that i understand this when you walk in i've been in your distillery but there's the huge uh what do you call them the big containers the fermenters Mm -hmm. can you just in we don't have to go through the whole thing but in like two or three minutes how how does whiskey get made yeah sure starts with the grain so you know at our facility you know, we contract with a specific farmer. Um, we actually were specifying which uh, grains he was growing for us. And that can, again, can go in a totally different direction. <laughs> uh, but he would deliver those grains. We would mill them to a spec so that we had. So, you know, depending on the particle size, it will ferment better or worse. Um, so you run it through a mill into this, you know, what looks like a fermenter, but it's closed. And that's the cooker. So steam, water um, goes into that, cooks the grain, um, and then you add uh, your last grain, which is uh, the malted barley, and that turns a lot of those um, starches into fermentable sugars. And how long did that process take? A couple hours. Okay. So then you transfer that into a fermenter and pitch your yeast. So then, you know, the yeast consumes all of that sugar, eats that sugar, and what it's creating is alcohol and CO2. Okay. Um, and so that will ferment for, you know, anywhere from, you know, different distillers do it differently, but anywhere from three days to six days. So at the end of that, you have basically what's, you know, what we referred to as beer, um, not the beer like Miller Lite, um, but it's a distiller's beer. And so, we uh in bourbon production traditional bourbon production you do not remove the grain from the distillation process so we had at you know whiskey ranch we had a 52 foot column still so we feed that beer into the top and there's you know 25 different plates 
Uh, it's kind of a refractionation column if you think of it in terms of oil and gas. Um, but basically running that uh, mash down through the still, injecting steam through the bottom, and all that alcohol vapor is being vaporized into um, and captured and ultimately condensed and captured into a vat, which is your distilled spirit. And then it moves to the barrel? Yes. And it just sits there for four years? Yep. Pretty what, much. What do you do? Just kind of every now and again, peek in and look at it? Like, is there any, you just kind of just... Sit? No, you, de you definitely do sampling. Um, so we, at that point, had a, a full lab with uh, scientists on staff. Okay. That would go in and, and interestingly when you're building uh large rick houses uh which is the the barns that the barrels age in we were building twenty thousand barrel rick houses at whiskey ranch um which is equivalent to you know distillers in kentucky uh interestingly they're not air conditioned they're not climate controlled uh, you need a lot of airflow through them but you're uh they're four four or five stories tall so the barrels that mature on the bottom level will taste different than the ones on the top level. And that's due to climate. That's, this is where the, the romantic side of, of whiskey comes in. Oh, yeah. Um, where you're allowing the elements to, you know, impart a lot of the flavors into the whiskey. Um, and very quickly, why I say that is, you know, the white oak is porous enough. You know, if you think of it like a, a group of straws. Um, that's like the you know, uh, layer of the white oak. And so you char it um, for a couple of reasons to kind of expose, you know, those you know, lignans and lactones, the kind of chemical elements in the, the white oak that impart a lot of flavor, but also that char gives it that kind of brown amber color. And so when it gets hot outside, you know, those fibers um, expand and allow the distillate to go into the wood. Mm -hmm. And then when it gets cold, they contract and they send it back in. And so it's that, you know, expansion contraction that ultimately creates uh, a lot of the taste profile of the whiskey. And when you get a barrel, has it ever ha stored anything in it before? And can you use them once it's done? Like what happens with barrels? You can only use it. It's brand new when you get it for bourbon. Uh, you can only use it once for straight bourbon. But then you can use it. A lot of scotch is aged and used bourbon barrels. Um, they don't like the, the really, you know, harsher kind of darker tones and harsher flavors, but you can use it for other styles of whiskey, just not straight bourbon. Yep. All right. We've kind of talked about a couple pillars of the business, the blend, um, the product that y'all made yourselves. At what point did you say, we need to buy a golf course and build a huge whiskey ranch? <laughs> like, how does that become assuming there was a great reason for doing it, but like, how did that kind of idea formulate and what were you thinking there? Yeah. So the first distillery we were in, the first building we were in was about 40,000 square feet. Half of it was devoted to distillation, the other distillation bottling, the other half was storage. Um, within six months of selling the blend, we looked around and kind of we're doing the math and we realized that we didn't have the capacity to fulfill demand if demand stayed where it was. Uh, so at that moment, we had to decide that we're going to expand. Well, it's not easy to kind of just build a distillery. We knew it was going to take a long time. And so started to put the pieces together of expanding and building a new facility. Um, 
I had to go through it all again. We had to, you know, put together a proposal, go raise a lot more money this time. Thankfully, we had a track record and, you know, it was a, it was a little bit easier the second go round. Um, but, you know, the criteria that we needed, you know, we studied Kentucky distillers a lot and, and had been to their facilities and saw that most of them were on anywhere from, you know, 100 acres to, you know, up to 500 acres. And we wondered why is that? Was it just, you know, how they set it up in the early days, um, people's farms? Well, what we realized is that the aging barns um, or the rickhouses, you know, they were separating them from one another uh, because effectively, you know, if those catch on fire, there's no, you know, putting it out. Okay. You've got millions of gallons of flammable (laughs) liquid and, you know, they would separate and, and, you know, put them in different places so that if one ever had a catastrophic, you know, issue, then it wouldn't affect the rest of them. Mm -hmm. So you needed that kind of elbow room, so to speak. And so that was one of the criteria that we were using when we were looking for um, another, you know, location. And we looked all around for, you know, probably six months, um, looked outside of the city, looked at a couple of small ranches. Um, But again, going back to, you know, the criteria we used for the first distillery, which was we really wanted to be centrally located if we could. We wanted it to be a destination for, you know, our fans and and customers. We had a vision to, you know, make it truly kind of a a whiskey wonderland, uh, as we later started referring to it as, (laughs) you know, all the things that we loved about it. And, you know, we wanted people to get up close and personal with it and experience it. Um, And so one day we're kind of scouring the internet and we come across um, a listing of a golf course uh, that was for sale. And we, you know, if I'm being honest, we didn't really know anything about that golf course. I'm not from Fort Worth. Leonard isn't either. Uh, but very quickly we realized that, you know, there was a tremendous amount of history at that golf course. Well, long story short, we ended up negotiating with the the folks. Um, you know, they were really struggling with trying to keep the golf course running. You know, at one time it was a great private club and then it became a private public club and then it became just a, a public club and they were really struggling and it was owned by two gentlemen, uh, that were really tired of footing the bill and, you know, really wanted to, um, you know, find at at the time they wanted to find a golf operator, but I don't think they could find one to do it. So we convinced them, you know, to, that we would be a a good steward and an operator and, um, ended up buying, you know, Glen Garden, which, um, for the the listeners that don't know, this was, um, an infamous golf course where, uh, Byron Nelson and Ben Hogan grew up caddying and learning to play the game yep there's a video of ben hogan would like sleep in the bunkers at night or something uh it was on golf channel recently but and whiskey ranch was going to be the distillery but it was also going to be a place that people could come it was just another way for people to get to know the brand i've been to several events there people could rent out uh rooms um is it almost uh, a given that if you're going to grow a whiskey distillery to a certain size, like you eventually have to build a facility like this? You can't really lease them from other people. No, you have to you have to own it. Um, and you know some distilleries don't really put you know tourism or or um, 
you know, customers experience at the forefront, you know, that was always important for us. And so all the way down to how we designed, you know, the still house, you know, where we have two staircases that go up, uh, one on either side of the still where, you know, any guest can come on a tour and get up close and personal with the whole process. You know, that was all by design. Um, but yeah, we wanted a place that, you know, people would not only come and learn about our product and, you know, experience it for themselves, but, you know, could hang out and, you know, drink whiskey and have events. That's awesome. And play golf. And there's still nine holes, right? Well, when we were running it, um, we had all 18. Okay. We had to modify a couple of holes because uh, we built in the center of the distiller or center of the, the property. Um, but we rerouted. We had 18. So the business has, has kind of been built. Um, you guys were around for a while the, the brand took off. Um, once you know, you have a really great product and you know that there's demand and you, and you know, you kind of have a playbook for going into different markets. How does your marketing evolve from being just a word of mouth to, I feel like everywhere I go in Fort Worth now is like the TX whiskey branded room at Dickie's arena or wherever. How does marketing level up once you know you've kind of hit a certain scale of your business? Yeah, after a while, uh, when you've converted, you know, the early adopters, you then you have to start thinking about how do I reach the next level of consumers? And, you know, we we tried a lot of different things. We threw a lot on the wall to see what would stick and uh, made a lot of mistakes along the way. But, you know, ultimately, you know, as you grow, as the company evolves and, and, you know, grows in size, you start to, you know, make some calculated risks and, and make decisions on, you know, what, what can we be a part of, or, you know, how can we reach, you know, the next consumer? And, you know, one of the things that was really big for us uh, early on, even, you know, in the first, you know, months of the distillery was, you know, we wanted to be a part of the community. Um, and so we would pick certain things, you know, that we could be a part of. The Stock Show and Rodeo here um, was one of them. You know, we worked with, you know, Brad Barnes and uh, a number of other folks on creating a, a trophy model for the winners of the of the rodeo. And I, I think they're still doing that. Hopefully they are. <laughs> um, but that was a lot of fun. Um, you know, the uh, Schwab Challenge at Colonial um, we would do, you know, because we had, we could customize our bottle, um, in a lot of different ways, you know, we would take the tartan of, you know, the colonial plaid and, you know, create bottles and give them to the players and those kinds of things. The bigger you get, the more, you know, capital you have devoted to, to marketing, the more things you can do. And so we, we gradually over time would, you know, invest more and more into the, those, um, events locally, but then also outside of, uh, our hometown, you know, we, at one point, and this was, I would say one of the, the mistakes that we made was we did a, a major marketing investment in the Houston Texans thinking that we were going to get a lot of exposure, you know, in that stadium and it just didn't work out. Yeah. Um, why do you think? I think it's just, uh, there's, and venues like that where, you know, there's so many brands clamoring for, you know, eyeballs and, and also being liquor, you know, 
we're kind of hamstrung in a lot of ways just being liquor you know we obviously don't want to you know uh, be showcased you know around you know minors we don't want to um you know we we can't in a lot of ways sell in certain stadiums you know maybe beer only for instance so you know we thought that hey there's a lot of people that go through there you know maybe it's it's worth it it also came with some uh you know kind of digital media and it just didn't garner the the attention that we wanted to um but at the end of the day uh we would build campaigns and you know with varying degrees of success but what worked for us was just being out there you know trial getting liquid on lips you know being present you know people wanted to meet us and um we signed a lot of bottles which was a lot of fun but you know at times could be very tiring yeah <laughs> Uh, you said the word mistake. If you, as you sit here right now, is there anything else like one or two things that come to mind that if somebody's ever thinking about doing this, it's like, we, we should not have done this. Any obvious mistakes you made in hindsight? Probably one of the biggest was trying to, um, go into too many markets too fast. Okay. Um, you know, we, we got to the point where we, built out a leadership team and had, you know, a CMO and, um, you know, head of sales and, you know, whole team of people that were devoted to helping, you know, drive strategy. And, you know, at the end of the day, it came down to, you know, deep versus wide. Yeah. So, you know, we, and we really believe to let our people, you know, make, you know, decisions and then support them and, um, hopefully, you know, kind of, uh, yeah, it, it works. And, you know, one of the things that didn't work well was, you know, kind of that, that wide, uh, strategy of trying to open too many markets at once, yeah. uh, or at least in a short period of time. Um, cause we needed people there. We needed investment dollars there. We needed a lot of things that we couldn't give it 110% of our attention to, uh, to be successful. So we then, you know, learned from that mistake, um, kind of captured back some of those resources and then, you know, pivoted to more of a deep, uh, strategy and that was working for us. We're going to talk about a little bit about the sale as we bring it home, but were y'all only in Texas always, or had you kind of gone nationwide as we weren't nationwide? Uh, we had picked markets. I think we were in 20, 20 something States at the time of the sale. Uh, but Texas was by far our largest market. And as you're going to those new markets, was that the distributor coming to you saying, Hey, let's go to Georgia. Or was that y'all saying, Hey, we'd like to go to Georgia. Or... Sometimes distributor would say, you know, we'd really like for you to open this market. You know, there seems to be considerable demand. Uh, sometimes we would agree and sometimes we wouldn't. Um, sometimes we said, no, we don't want to open that market yet. Um, and then other times it would be, you know, maybe someone on our, on our staff. I would say we really feel like we should open a market. Yeah. Um, so just depended on the, the market and, and high level, was there a, you kind of just talked about how one of the mistakes was growing too quickly and getting into these markets, maybe unprepared by towards the end, uh, as an operator, did y'all have a playbook for how you entered a new market? We did. Um, you know, it had to be that we could 
you know, have a physical presence there, um, that we had earmarked enough dollars for both um, sales efforts and marketing efforts. Uh, and then, you know, distributor support. So having enough, um, you know, point of sale materials and all those things. Um, again, purposeful. We weren't really big on keychains and hats and all that kind of stuff, but we would really tailor a lot of our point of sale materials to the market. I don't know. One thing y'all did really well, uh, and I think I've told you this, but the gift giving around Christmas, I am lucky enough to be the receiver of like four TX bottles of whiskey for Christmas every year, but it's because the companies can brand that piece of cloth around the the top, whatever their, their firm is. And I thought that was genius and has kept me uh, nice and served for <laughs> <laughs> many Christmases now. Yeah, I mean, the customization is is big. Again, it's that another touch point, another you know piece of the story that you know people can gravitate to. I think that contributed to our success. Um, you know, I can't tell you how many people tell me I've gotten four different bottles with four different logos on them. Um, so it's just really gratifying. Okay, let's talk a little bit about the sale and bring it home. So. You guys started in 09 uh, at probably the worst possible time and built this incredible company over a, a decade or more. When did the light start coming on that it was maybe going to be time to sell? Well, interestingly, um, I don't know that we had that light in our minds, but we did have, um, we'd taken private equity. Um, we you know, had just completed whiskey ranch in november of 17 um and so in our minds that was the next big step to lay the pathway for the next 10 years and really quick did you take the private equity to build risky ranch or was that another round along yes the way? yes okay. um so i mentioned it earlier when we decided to to expand we needed to raise more capital got it um and that was part of it and i think they uh well so we completed the facility in november of 17 and then right after the new year that year in 18 you know our sales had been growing pretty dramatically um we had kind of gone from what i would say you know in the industry there's the craft distillers which are all the kind of the small guys and then on the opposite in the spectrum are all the really big guys like the Beams and the you know Diageos of the world. Um, but there's very few that enter the middle market is what I would call them. And you know Nielsen is a service that people follow in the industry of case sales and so on. So they people can start to you know get a sense for where how much volume you're doing as a brand. Well, we had kind of found ourselves you know sneaking out of that craft distilling world and into that middle market world, which is, you know, right. You know, all of the big guys are just kind of hoping that somebody gets there. Um, uh, and they don't, big companies don't build brands anymore. They buy brands. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's just been the way it's been for a long time now. And so or very rarely do they build brands. Um, so we, we were kind of entering that our, our case volume was entering that middle market. Um, and then all of a sudden the phone starts ringing kind of first quarter of, you know, 18, um, by multiple people 
And so we would, you know, we were flattered, of course, and, uh, but we were, you know, had our blinders on and we're, you know, planning on, you know, what's the next 10 years going to be. And at this time, there was also a lot of activity in the M&A market and spirits, and there had been some really big multiples occurring in some of those transactions. And so we would report back to our board of, we've, you know, heard from these people and, you know, isn't that flattering, (laughs) you know, but, you know, we're just going to kind of keep going and like, well, you know, maybe you should have a conversation with them. And so we're like, okay, we did. Um, and so, you know, over that spring, you know, there was a, a couple of groups that were really aggressive and just, Hey, we love what you're doing. You know, we can, um, you know, with our, um, sales force, you know, we can really supersize this brand and, you know, all the great things, you know, that you would want to hear. But still, we were just kind of like, well, we just, you know, just set the groundwork for the next, you know, 10, 15 years. And nevertheless, um, it got to the point where they were just so aggressive that, um, you know, in our conversations with the board, they're like, we, we should test the market. Yeah. And so, you know, we were very careful about that. You know, we had a very small curated process. Um, and ultimately, um, there was one group that was really aggressive, um, and part, partly because they were lacking a, um, sizable North American whiskey in their portfolio. Mm. And that was Pernod Ricard, uh, which is a number two spirits company in the world, I think. Wow. Um, so they have Jameson and Belvedere and, you know, lots of other big and great brands, but they owned wild Turkey for a, a spell and then sold it somewhere along the way. And so we're lacking a, a significant North American whiskey and North American whiskey was really hot at the time and probably still is. And so they just kind of came with a, a number that worked. we worked and couldn't refuse. And so that's what and that, did it. When was that? Because Q1 of 2018 is when the first uh, solicitations kind of came in. When did you actually make the decision that we're going to go with an offer? Was that that about a year year? later? Okay. So that whole year is kind of business as usual, but you're also kind of dealing with, we might have to sell this thing. Yeah. Um, So it kind of started as, you know, the the flattering meetings and phone calls. And then, you know, more and more interest was there and uh, more conversations were had at the board level. And, you know, ultimately figuring out, you know, if we were going to test the market, who would our bankers be and yada, yada, yada. Do you value an alcohol business uh, based on like an EBITDA multiple plus some goodwill of the brand or how, how are how are these businesses valued in general? I mean, a, a metric is uh, kind of dollar per case, um, generally speaking, or, you know, some, I would say most uh, metrics are around revenue per case. Um, course every deal is different yeah um yeah in our case it was you know we we had had a significant capital investment in you know the future of the of the business and building whiskey ranch and you know at that time we the capacity of whiskey ranch you know production capacity of whiskey ranch uh made us the largest 
whiskey producing operation outside of Kentucky and Tennessee. Oh, wow. Um, so a lot of uh, built in capacity, which was a very attractive for uh, someone like Pernod that could really you know, hit the gas pedal. All right. I wanted to spend the last few minutes uh, on what it's kind of like to sell a business, especially one that you've built for 10 years. I'm not saying with every entrepreneur, your business somehow becomes a little part of your identity. And I'm not saying that in a bad way, you know, we, we shouldn't let our businesses, you know, be all too consuming. But for someone that it was like a community, it was a pillar, you're a pillar of the community. You're kind of, like you said, you were attached to it. Like the first question is, was there a point in the sales process where your mind had already gone too far? Like we're going to sell, like you usually hear where there's like a point of no return or was it always like, look, if it sells, it sells. If it doesn't, it doesn't. Definitely hit that point that this is going to happen. Uh, and if it doesn't happen, then we're in a heap of trouble because at that point, you know, once the announcement came, you know, your distributors start getting squeamish because they're worried about losing a brand. Mm. Um, and so then they don't necessarily want to put forth a lot of effort in selling your brand. And so if it didn't go through, it would have been a giant mess that we were going to have to dig out. Um, so, you know, I think probably after the announcement of the sale, um, and then for, you know, the next, I think, I think we had 30 to 40 days closing period, which was, <laughs> uh, they had lost a lot of nights of sleep on that one. Um, but ultimately, um, and at the time, you know, to your point about, you know, did we, where was my mind at? They were talking about keeping us on for a period of time and basically, you know, uh, no change, you know, keep running it how you have been. Well, in reality, you know, really the, the week after the sale, we showed up and, um, yeah, they, they were already kind of thinking about how to change things and so forth. Yeah. And it was more of a, you know, ambassador role. Right. Um, and then COVID hit. When did you close? <laughs> in August of 19. Oh my gosh. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. When you woke up the day after the wire hit and you had closed, did you feel any different? Was it sad? Was it happy? Was it both? Uh, didn't feel any different, uh, with the money wise, uh, from a money standpoint, you know, felt different, uh, like con more concerned what's going to happen next. Um, it wasn't until probably right after Christmas that year, um, that there was kind of, I don't want to say a depression, but there was, you know, a mourning period, yeah. um, kind of a you know, internal mourning period, because to your question about identity, you know, our identities were a hundred percent wrapped up into it. Yeah. I mean, our names were on the bottle. Our names were on the distillery. You know, we were the faces, our names were, our faces were on the box. You know, we were the ones that, you know, people requested us to come to their events and sign bottles and, you know, all the things. Um, and, you know, having to, go through the process of detaching yourself from that. You know, I wasn't anticipating it, you know, being hard, but it was, it was hard for, I don't know, a couple months or something. How do you do that? But, but I will say this. So I will say that towards the end, you know, we had gotten to be, you know, a big, a 
big enough company where you were starting to feel like it was a little corporate. Um, and I was starting to feel a little bit tired of not having anonymity. Yeah. Um, and not that I was a celebrity at all, but you know, locally there weren't many places I could go even, you know, use this as an example. I couldn't go to my, you know, the liquor store that's closest to my house and just get a bottle of something without being, you know, bombarded by the staff or whatever the case may be. Um, and that started to wear on me a little bit. Yeah. And then, you know, now flipping back to that period of kind of unwrapping or unwinding myself from, you know, the brand that started to feel after that kind of month or two of, you know, morning, if you will, um, after that, you know, things started, I could start going places and, you know, it's amazing how quickly people forget or, um, and that felt really good. You know, started to get some of the an anonymity back. Do you <clears> think <throat> you'll be attached to the brand forever? Is that your, I mean, I'm sure there's a part of you that wants to be, but it is Firestone and, and Robertson distilling I'm, company. To, to some extent, yes. Um, you know, unless they decide to, you know, pull our, they have pulled our faces off the box, I think, for, um, you know, if they decide to take the name off the bottle and yeah. you know, there'll be a detachment. But I mean, I think we'll forever be the founders of the business, yeah. um, which is pretty That's awesome cool. to say and, you know, look forward to, you know, having those, telling those stories to my, my kids someday. Yeah, I just have to imagine the day after a sale or the the next time you walk into the office after it's it's over there's just got to probably be that little feeling of like, you know, that was your baby. That was your that was your deal. No, it's real. It's definitely real. But I mean, I'm still young and you know, looking forward to We don't have to, to go to it on this episode, but I know you got some <laughs> cool things in the works and maybe we'll be able to reconvene here in a few years and and talk about those things. That'd be awesome. That'd be awesome. Troy, thanks for joining me today. Thank you, Chris. It was awesome. Jason, as we sat back years ago and were envisioning where Fort was going to go, we realized we needed to bring in a global workforce, a remote workforce that could work with us. And a few of the reasons why were obviously cost, which I think is the first thing that comes to everybody's mind. But then when we talk about shifts, a 24-hour shift, and maybe you can go a little further there and some of the other benefits that we've realized as we've gone on. And now we sit here today in 2022. At the time we first had this was maybe 10 employees. Now we're at 46. Mm -hmm. And as you think about the next chapter and how we're scaling, it's almost inconceivable that we would do it without Relay Human Cloud. So can you just talk a little bit more to how the shifts work at Fort and the productivity and some of the other benefits that we've learned about working with a, a global workforce? It's actually been pretty transformational from how we think about how we're going to not only get stuff done today, but how we're going to get stuff done in the future as we grow. And so when you start going down that path of thinking about you're going to start working with people on the other side of the world, right? There's a lot of questions that come up. How are we going to do it? How are we going to train them? How are we going to manage them? Who's managing them? All those things come up. What we found with Relay Human Cloud was that all those thoughts had already been taken care of and that we could focus on what type of talent is there that can join our team? Does it fit our need? And once we saw that, that all that thought and energy had already been put into the operational part of 
managing and running a team and the thing that we focus on here locally, then it was just a matter of finding the talent. And what I think that Relo Human Cloud has done really well is find a lot of great talent. And, you know, uh, these are people that are highly educated, that uh, can provide a ton of value to a company like ours that otherwise we can't find here. And obviously it's at a, a high uh, or a extreme cost savings compared to what we could find here. So what we started looking for was how could we supplement what we currently do with the team overseas? And it started off for us from an accounting perspective. We, we have a lot of these things that are repetitive, task-driven, that just never end. And we know that, knew that our team was taking on a lot of work during the day, which was limiting our ability to take on new properties. And so we could either, we have a choice. We can hire another accountant or another staff accountant or promote somebody and bring that person on. But we're really just trying to solve, at first, a repetitive task. So when we reached out to Relay Human Cloud, we discovered that not only could we solve that problem, we could get a very qualified person that could not only do that, help support on a lot of other things. And so it, very quickly, it turned into we're trying to solve some repetitive tasks to uh, bringing on more and more team members that were actually helping us grow our accounting department without having to bring on a lot of people here. And so that that just continued to grow. So since then, we've brought on additional assistance, but it started with accounting. The benefit of having a team working globally is that you get the benefit of around the clock and it never ends. And so because we have a uh, team here working on things, obviously the time runs out during the day, but there's things that are going to, they're going to come into work tomorrow and they're going to have to start doing that again. One of those things, is, and a good example is cash reconciliations of every bank account. At Ford Capital, we have 50 bank accounts and there's cash reconciliations that have to happen every day. Well, that was something that locally a team had to come into work and start working on every day. Well, that just means there's other things they can't start working on. What happened uh, immediately with our team at uh, Relay Human Cloud was that overnight they were processing all those. They were doing all that accounting work on the back end so that when our team showed up in the morning, they could start on more important tasks that were happening happening locally directly related to the property. Mm. And that that allowed us to uh, create efficiencies. And so that's just one benefit. You, we can go through a, a, an entire list of things that we have discovered that overnight can be done to help increase the efficiency of the accounting team. That, that extends beyond the accounting team. It also extends to the property management team processing invoices. So... Uh, Capital, we have millions of square feet of industrial space uh, across the country. And with that, you have a lot of invoicing that's happening at all times. You, you could name a million things, whether it's paying bills, contractors, tenants, whatever it is, there's a, a million invoices being, and that can all be processed in India overnight so that when our team comes in, they're not spending their day processing invoices, which yep. allows us to get to more, uh, proactive accounting measures so that we're using our accounting team to actually push the company forward, not uh, keep up with what's coming at us. Right? right. And so we found a ton of efficiencies um, by using or by having the 24 hour workday. So following that up, it was also important to us because that could have been done anywhere, but we wanted it happening under one roof with people that we knew that we worked with daily that were part of our team. And so as you think about these people that are halfway across the globe, it still doesn't seem like they're, ha it seems like they're in the next room over. Right. And, and that, that's a good point. And I think the, the what, what's important to understand there is that this 
group of individuals that are working in India are working directly for our team. They are a part of our team. They're in our systems. Um, they communicate with our team every day. They are not just an extension of our team. They are a part of our team. And so it is much, much different than if you go hire a third party service out there in the world that you're asking to process invoices, who you're having to send uh, critical or uh, important data to that is or might be sensitive, right? Um, information. We actually have all that internal and this team is a part of that internal team. And so it, it's a it's a much different way to look at outsourcing than if you're just outsourcing it even here locally in America. There's a risk there that you're uh, sending your data to somewhere else. This is all happening internally. Whether you're a small business, medium-sized business, large business, and you're looking to expand your team and build a global workforce, go to RelayHumanCloud.com, use the promo code THEFORTPOD, that's THEFORTPOD, and they have been generous enough to offer $500 off for every employee that you hire per year. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of The Fort Podcast. Be sure to follow us on your favorite podcast platform or hop on over to YouTube to watch full video episodes if that's what you prefer. For more information, you can check out thefortpod.com. Chris Powers is the founder and chairman of Fort Capital LP. All opinions from Chris and guests of the Fort Podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Fort Capital LP. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions.